Okay, at this time we have our second message brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Are You Ready for the Master's Return? Well, good afternoon. Make sure I'm plugged up here. Okay. So, appreciate it, Matt. As it was said, are you ready for the Master's Return? is the title of this message today. And I'd like to welcome everybody to the Feast of Trumpets 2021. It's a blessing to be here. It's my first time I've ever had the opportunity to give a message on this day. And so, I'd like to start off with just a little bit of a personal story. I've kind of written it out, so bear with me and hopefully it makes sense to you. But it was Monday evening, February the 6th, 2012. Me and my wife, Katie, were going out to eat for an early birthday celebration, even though her birthday would not be until that Saturday, February 11th. The reason we were celebrating her birthday early was because we were expecting the arrival of someone the next morning promptly at 10 a.m. on February 7th, on that Tuesday. That person would prevent us from probably being able to celebrate her birthday for a while at least. We had dinner, we came home, we had some cake that her mother had bought for her, and we concluded the evening by watching a movie. And it was about midnight that evening, and we decided that it was time to go to bed, that we had a long and busy day ahead of us, because we had been expecting this person for about nine months to arrive. We had been prepared through buying supplies, creating a room in our house that suited this individual, dozens of blankets, and of course, a bunch of clothes. As we prepared to go to bed, I was trying to undo our bed and get our pillows ready. I all of a sudden heard this shout from the living room. This teruah, as it's called in the Hebrew, which we'll get into in just a few minutes. And I hear this shout, whoa! And I started thinking to myself, what in the world's going on? And so I go to the living room to see what was happening, and it turned out my wife's water had broke. There was no time to sleep. No more six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours that we thought we were going to get one last time for the foreseeable future. There was no casual morning coffee, no time to take a shower, but only enough time to put some clothes on and thankfully grab that emergency bag that they tell you to pack, which it was not thanks to me, but of course thanks to her. So we did that. We got some clothes on, our shoes on, we grabbed that bag, and we headed to the hospital to welcome our first child, Samuel Asher Whiteley. His arrival was much more imminent than we even thought even though it was only by about eight hours early. As we made our way to the hospital, we managed to get there in just 20 minutes, and that is including getting pulled over on my way there. <laughs> and that really did happen. And luckily, the nice police officer realized what was happening and promptly led us on our way. And just after 2 a.m. on February 7, 2012, he made his entrance into this world. And so I wanted to give you that story today. As we know, we are expecting something 
And that this day pictures the expectation of the arrival of, of course, our King, Jesus Christ. It's a day that's been anticipated through the ages. The prophets, the apostles, and all of the saints that have come between then and now have longed for this day, that great day where the Master finally returns. And so to start off today, I think it's a good custom to go to the actual chapter in the Bible where we're instructed to be here, Leviticus the 23rd chapter. And let's just read that real quick. Leviticus the 23rd chapter, verse 24. And we have some trumpets that have been blown today. And we're going to talk just briefly about some of the usage of these trumpets in the Bible. But what I'd like to do is look at some of the background surrounding this day and the meaning of trumpets. And then I would like us to turn our attention to that king that we're anticipating to come. And listen to some of his exhortations that he has for us. Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, verse 24 says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And today marks that first day of the seventh month, according to God's calendar. And here in this passage, we are told on this day, we are to have a Sabbath rest. And as was mentioned in the devotional, it's a memorial. A memorial of blowing of trumpets. Now the Hebrew phrase that we actually read doesn't actually contain the word trumpets. It's the Hebrew word teruah. And it literally means to raise a cry, to shout, or a loud blast. And so even though the traditional term for trumpets that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures, like shofar, as we've seen two of them here today, ram's horns, or what's known as a hasarah, a metal trumpet, even though we don't see those two terms in this, we do see in Leviticus, the 25th chapter, a little bit later, use this term shofar in conjunction with the word hasarah, a metal trumpet, with that word teruah. We also see it in Numbers, the 10th chapter, where silver trumpets were used, probably at different sizes to have different pitches, also used with that word teruah, which means that most likely there was a variety of trumpets that were utilized on this day. The Old Testament gives us a variety of ways that trumpets, both metal as well as the shofar, the ram's horns, were used in the Old Testament. They were used at holy days, of course, as we see right here. They were used at new moons or the beginning of the new, new months. Other sacred times, such as sacrificing and special sacrifices, Yom Kippur and the, the year of Jubilee, we know that the shofar was sounded. They are also used in the scriptures, as we see in Exodus, the 19th chapter, with the children of Israel to assemble them to the foot of the mountain to hear what God had to say. And one of the most notable times in the Bible that a trumpet was used was in Joshua, the sixth chapter, when the trumpet sounded and all the people shouted, resulting in the walls of Jericho falling and crashing down. You can find that in Joshua, the sixth chapter, verse 20. 
But we also read of another trumpet blast. That's the signature, that's one of the signature descriptions of what is known in the scriptures as the day of the Lord. That's foretold by many of the prophets, including Joel. We also know that this points directly to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that coming King that's coming in judgment. Let's go to Joel, the second chapter. And we have read this before, and it was just read this past Sabbath. But Joel, the second chapter, we hear this spoken of by Joel. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm, a teruah in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. And this is kind of a mixed day to some extent, right? Because there's gloominess that surrounds this day. There's darkness. There's terrible things that are presented in the Scriptures because it is the day of the Lord where He comes in judgment. He comes in judgment. Jesus, interestingly, as we know, adds to this description. Let's turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter. He adds to what we find in the prophets regarding this great and terrible day of the Lord. But it's not all doom and gloom, as we shall see. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, and through chapter 25, we come to a section of Scripture that we know as, as the Olivet Discourse. In this section of the Gospel, Jesus gives the disciples a description of the times before His return. And in Matthew, the 24th chapter, we read that Jesus is walking with His disciples, and it's like they pointed out as they're walking out of the Temple Mount area, man, Jesus, look at these, look at this temple, look what it's built with, look at the, the, the splendor of this structure. We read verse 1 of Matthew 24, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple. Now, it's interesting because if you read the synoptic parallels in Mark as well as in Luke, it's like they say this because they're so impressed with the temple. In Mark, for example, 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 1 says, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And in Luke, the 21st chapter, describing the same event in verse 5, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. And so here you have these disciples pointing out the splendor of the temple. These mighty stones. The detail that went in to building this structure. And Jesus says this. And Jesus said to them in verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And this no doubtedly must have shocked the disciples. 
this must have been something that was difficult for them to understand. They probably were thinking to themselves, there goes Jesus again talking craziness. Saying things that are out there and random and we don't understand totally over our head. You've said some wild things, but now you're talking about the temple being torn down? I can just imagine them trying to wrap their head around. Now, how does this fit into the plan? The temple being destroyed? I know things aren't going very well. I know sometimes we go and Jesus preaches and the religious leaders don't believe in him and a lot of people reject him. But I thought maybe this was the trip. This was the trip. This was the trip that we were going to go to Jerusalem and Jesus was finally going to convince these individuals that he was the Messiah. That he was the promised Savior. And now here Jesus is talking crazy again about the temple being destroyed. So as they made their way out of the Temple Mount area, they probably crossed through the what's known as the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. And it would have been plenty of time for them to think of a response to what Jesus had said. Because we see that Jesus says this as they're walking by the temple, and then there's a little bit of a ways to walk, so time had probably went by. And when they got to the Mount of Olives, they still had it on their mind what Jesus had said about the temple. They would have had plenty of time to try to figure out what exactly were you talking about, Jesus? And we see that in verse 3 of Matthew 24. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And from here, Jesus goes on to expound to them those things that will take place at the end of the age, before the terrible day of the Lord. We see in verses 3 through 28, the signs of the end of times. We see him talk about false Christs about wars, about nations and kingdoms rising up against one another, famines, earthquakes, a time of great sorrow, a time where love of many will wax cold. It'll dull, it'll cool. But then in verse 29 of Matthew, we see Jesus say immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so Jesus describes these things that seem to be, not the day of the Lord descriptions, but the end times, seem to be things that have happened in every age. Famines and wars and kingdom rising up against kingdom and sin abounding seems to be things that have happened in every age. But it is apparent that Jesus understands that these things will just get worse and worse until that description he gives in verse 29, the great day of the Lord. And so Jesus spends this time, this very first part of the, what's known as the Olivet Discourse, telling them about these signs, but he doesn't just give them descriptions. He starts moving into 
exhortations of how we are to act in the meantime. How we are to respond as we wait, as we watch. And we see that in the beginning, or the very end, excuse me, the end of chapter 24, Jesus starts talking in parables. He starts teaching them different lessons and parables, all likening them to the person who's prepared for the return of the Son of Man. One of those parables I would like us to go through today, and it's at the very end of Matthew 24 and verses 45 through 51. He doesn't just give us a description of what these days will be like. He gives us a job. He gives us exhortation. So let's read that last portion. I wanted to read all of this chapter, but for time's sake, I knew I couldn't, so I picked this parable. And there's other parables, the parables of the ten virgins and the parables of the talents that you'll see in Matthew 25 that all are trying to get the same message across. We're not to be idle as we wait. We're not to slumber, but we're to be prepared. In verse 45 of chapter 24, Jesus says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household? To give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so to set this stage of this parable, we see that Jesus, he gives us, really you could say one servant that has two different responses to the scenario that they're put in. In verse 45, he, he, he begins this parable by asking a question. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? And this word servant is the Greek word doulos, and it refers to a servant slave. A slave. Someone who's not just serving someone because they want to, but because it's required of them. And this is something in this ancient world, the economy of this ancient world was driven by slavery. And the most common way one became a slave during this time was either by being a prisoner of war or by about being in so much debt you had no other choice but to, to sell yourself to someone to get out of that debt. And this is why we find so many analogies that Jesus gives, especially in the parables between a servant and a master. Because that is kind of our relationship as we see Paul talks about how we were slaves, servants to sin. We were indebted to sin. And now we give that up and through Christ we become a servant to Christ. We become a servant to Christ. So the first individual that Jesus described was the one that was wise and faithful. A little bit of background about these individuals. This person who was the slave was the slave but was obviously put in charge of all the other slaves. He was responsible for carrying out his master's household and, and, and taking care of all the other servants. He was like the manager. He was responsible for directing and managing the work that needed to be completed as well as ensuring the other slaves or other servants got
got what they needed when they needed. We see a similar parable in Luke, the 12th chapter, where Jesus uses the word oikonomos, which means a steward. And so what we're seeing is, is that this was like a slave manager that the master had set to be a steward over all of his goods, including his servants. And in this time, they'd be charged with dividing the rations. They would not just direct the servants to get the different work done, but they would maybe even have responsibility over some of the wealth of that master. And of course, this left them with opportunity, with opportunity to maybe abuse their position as the master was not present. But this first servant was a wise and faithful servant because when the master returned, the servant was found doing what he was charged to do. He was faithful in carrying out the responsibility of his stewardship. And we see as a result, the result of his faithfulness was being told that now he's going to have even more responsibility and be over all of the master's possessions. But the other servants, or shall we say the same servant that had a different response, was an individual that was not faithful. Instead of taking seriously his responsibilities, he neglected it. He neglected it. He began living a life focused on his own pleasures, abusing the other servants, eating and drinking among the drunkards. And there are two things that I want to point out here in this passage when we read about this unwise and unfaithful servant. The first one is, He's called an evil servant. The servant is evil, probably because both he neglects his master's tasks, he focuses on himself, and he beats his fellow servants. And this Greek word, beat, literally means to strike or smite. And I want to point out, it's interesting, because even though this is not completely related, because Jesus had just gotten done talking about what it was like, and what people and how they would behave in the end times, I think that you can say that there is somewhat of a relationship between this unwise servant and the way that Jesus talks about the way people will be in the end times earlier in Matthew, the 24th chapter. We read, for example, in verse 10, Jesus says, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. The, in, the New King James Version that I initially read out of actually says the word offended. But it's probably more appropriately translated fall away. Because when you look at that Greek word, that's kind of what it means. It means an apostasy, so to speak. A falling of way. And we see in Matthew, the 12th chapter, in the same chapter, Jesus says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This is the only time this word cold is used in the entire New Testament. It's the Greek word psych, and it's the only time used, and it means a waning love or affection. A waning love or affection. Now, we've only lived in a short period of time in world history, right? But in that span of time, you sometimes can kind of judge how you see people seem to be from when you were maybe younger to maybe whenever you're a little bit older. And the older you are, the more perspective you have because you've lived more years. 
Now, I'm not claiming to have any data, any statistics, but it does seem from my vantage point at least the revealing of this is being shown. And what I mean by the revealing through social media, through the platforms that everybody gets to ear out their grievances, it does seem that we live in an age where the love of people has really grown cold. It's really unfortunate. And I'm talking about not just regular individuals, but even people who seem to be used to be committed to Christ and still maybe even claim that they are. Every little controversy that comes out, and you can just see it, unfortunately, the way that people argue with each other. Bitter arguments that really you have to ask yourself, wow, where is the love of God in that individual that used to seem to display it? Whether this be on social media and people arguing about politics or people arguing about the pandemic or people arguing about all different subjects. I see that this is something that probably has always existed. But because of the rise of technology and social media, I think maybe we just see it in our face that much more. But then again, maybe it is gotten worse and worse and worse. I'm not here to claim if it's the end times, if it's right around the corner, because I know with what Jesus is telling me right now and telling us is that that doesn't even matter. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. In this individual's situation, this servant, the root of the problem was his heart. That's the second thing I wanted to bring out in this section about this evil, wicked servant. Because the scriptures tell us, but if that evil servant says in his heart, he says it in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. This other servant that was described, the other one, the faithful one, the circumstances were exactly the same. Exactly the same. As the wicked servant. Both of them were charged with being over their master's assets. Both of them experienced their master's absence. But what drove them to act in two complete opposite ways. Was a matter of the heart. The faithful servant was committed from the heart. But the wicked servant because his heart was not committed to his master. Was not committed to the stewardship that he was given. And realizing that he had opportunity because in his heart he says, my master has delayed and I have all this time to do things for myself. He's not going to come back for a long time. I'm left here alone to my own devices and he saw an opportunity to take advantage of the situation. Abusing his stewardship, beating the servants, maybe not giving them all the money that they were due, all their portion, and taking some of it. Eating and drinking among the drunkards. It's interesting because if you read in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verse 7, we see that Paul says, And do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And he said this in reference to those ancient Israelites who set up that golden calf while he's admonishing us not to fall after their example. 
So here we have this unfaithful servant. And so the master abruptly comes. The master returns when he is unaware and he faces judgment. And there's two things that we see this individual face. The first one is rather bizarre. He says that he would be cut into pieces. And it literally means that he would be dismembered. And it does sound like a bizarre treatment, but I think that there may be a relation to Jeremiah, the 34th chapter, verse 18, where Jeremiah says, And I will give the men who have transgressed my, transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant, which, were, which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and pass between the parts of it. You see, there's some possible history here that we have to understand for this to make sense because I think that to some extent it is metaphorical, but it is maybe possibly pointing back to some things that truly are in the Bible because in the ancient biblical times as well as this part of the world in biblical times, a covenant would be ratified by walking or standing between two bloodied pieces of an animal that had been slaughtered. And as the two individuals would walk through in between this dismembered animal, the ratification came where they would basically plead or they would pledge to say, if we break the terms of this covenant, we shall be like these animals, ourselves cut in two just like them. In Genesis, the 15th chapter, we see this happen with Abraham. Abraham, he divides up these animals. He's, he's getting ready to enter this covenant with Abram. He's not Abraham yet, but he's Abram. In Genesis, the 15th chapter, God himself walks through these slaughtered animals, which symbolizes that God himself, if he was not to be faithful to this covenant, would do this to himself. Verse, 15, verse 10 says, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord had made a covenant with Abram. Now, of course, God couldn't be cut into pieces, but he was demonstrating just how serious he was to Abram that he would fulfill that covenant. The second thing that it says that this wicked, wicked servant would get was to be appointed his portion among the hypocrites. I think there is something instructive in looking at the, this word hypocrites here as Jesus says. It's a word that Jesus uses oftentimes in relation to people who are hypocritical religiously. This word in the Greek is hypocrites, and it refers to a stage player or actor. And it originally referred to people who played acting positions and plays and things like that because individuals were acting like somebody that they were not. But eventually, by the time of the New Testament, it is used of a religious counterfeit. Someone who claims to be something that they truly and genuinely are not. And I'm probably certain in this scenario that Jesus has in his mind that he's given us, that this person, he says these things in his heart, he's probably not open about it. He's probably not like, yeah, I'm going to go out and let everyone know that you know, I'm not really committed to my master. It was probably something that he inwardly kept to himself, but you can't keep it inwardly because eventually the heart is going to be the driver of your actions and your conduct. He says, my master lays his coming in his heart, not openly. And so no doubt 
this individual was numbered among the hypocrites simply because he was claiming to be something that he wasn't. It also shows us that Jesus is not just talking to anybody, but he's talking to all of us. All of us who have professed to be servants of him and who have claimed to have given our life over to him, he's warning us to make sure our hearts match this. So I got just a couple points of application based upon this parable that we read today. There's many more that we could come up with. There's many different things that we could get from this. This day has so much meaning. But I think that in, in terms of this parable that we read and the other parables that are coupled with it around, there's two things I want to bring out. First of all, we must be prepared for Jesus' return. We must be prepared for Jesus' return. And whether we're actually living when Jesus comes or his return for us comes in the form of death, we must be ready. I'm reminded, and it's been a while since we've probably sung this song, but I'm reminded of that song, you know, Are You Ready? Are You Ready? Are You Ready for the Judgment Day? It's a classic hymn. I grew up, remember listening to that song. That's what Jesus is asking us in this latter part of the Olivet Discourse. In the parable that we read, the master returned not at a designated time that the servant knew about, but unexpectedly. But he only returned unexpectedly to the foolish and unfaithful servant. You notice that in the scriptures? It doesn't say that the faithful servant was surprised by his coming. But rather, it seems to be that that faithful servant demonstrated that he knew that his master would return at any moment, at all times, which drove him to continue his faithfulness. The question we have for ourselves, do we live our lives as if Christ could return at any moment? Forget about the prophecies that you think have to happen before that happens. Not saying that they don't. The, the, the word of God is true and accurate and will come to pass the way it says it does. Now, whether or not we understand exactly all the events, that's another question. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, here's the thing. Okay, This is when it's going to happen. Know this, if these things aren't happening, you've got plenty of time, relax. He always encourages us to be ready at any time. That this could happen at any time. And the reason for that is, is because we have to live our life like it could happen at any moment. And that's what Jesus is telling us in the scriptures to be prepared. There's a parable that happened or that was given right before the parable that we read in verse 45 and Matthew verse 43 and 44 that Jesus says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would have come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here Jesus uses two terms in this parable about the thief. He says to stay awake. Stay awake. Be watchful. Attentive. Vigilant. Circumspect. That's what stay awake. Stay alert. Be ready. And he also says be prepared. Be prepared. Be ready. So what does preparation look like? That's the question we have to ask as well. Be ready for, for Christ's return to happen at any moment. 
But what exactly do you mean by preparation? Is it physical or is it spiritual? I think it's apparent in the context of Scripture here as well as the context of all the other Scriptures that we read in the New Testament that Jesus is focusing on our spiritual preparedness. In fact, we see that Jesus says in verse 17 and 18, right before this, we know that He must not be talking about being ready physically because He says, let him who is in the housetop or on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. So Jesus, of course, is not saying you need to start stockpiling canned foods, you need to stockpile weapons, stockpile clothes. He's not advocating being a doomsday prepper. Now that doesn't say anything against being smart, being wise. But I think that if you fix the spiritual part, then the physical part will come. The physical part will come. But at the end of the day, it will also fail us because only Christ is what's going to sustain us through this time. First of all, I think that our preparation begins with our heart. Is it set on God's kingdom and not on the one that we have created ourselves? I think it's possible to create our own kingdom. Not, you know, like where we're intentionally doing it, but when we live our life as to fulfill our own lusts, our own desires, we are being servants of a kingdom that we've created. Secondly, our preparation means we nurture the Holy Spirit that God has given us to take seriously the talents later on after this chapter in verse 25. Jesus not only talks about being prepared, but he also talks about being responsible with the talents that he's been given us. And that's the same thing that we see with this individual, the two individuals, and the way that they respond to their stewardship. Do we take seriously the talents or the gifts that God has given us, that he's bestowed upon us, to run the race with endurance, meaning fully to the end? Preparing also means nurturing that blessed hope of Christ appearing by rejecting ungodliness. Paul tells us, in his letter when he's instructing Titus, this pastoral letter in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I can remember being a younger adult before I got baptized, maybe even high school. And, you know, I'd grown up in church and I'd grown up, you know, believing, yes, I believe in God. And I think the Bible's, you know, the Word of God. And I believed those things that I was taught, but I wasn't committed to them. And I remember, and I'm not kidding you, I remember those subconscious thoughts going through my head like, well, I'm young. I have plenty of time to get right with God later. You know, I'm going to have fun right now. I want to do these things. I don't want to give those things up. But it's kind of a, a foolish mindset, right? Because you always think that you have more time. You always think that tomorrow is going to come, but you don't know it, that it really is. And I think as we get older, we, of course, learn that more and more, that what David said in the, in the Psalms, 
Like, for example, in Psalm 144, verse 4, he says, Man is like a breath, his days like a passing shadow. And that's true. That newborn baby that I talked about at the very beginning of this message today is nine and a half years old now. And it's insane to think that that could be possible. And how fleeting time is. And how quickly it goes by. Remember, the day of the Lord only comes as a shock to those who don't expect it. Be prepared. My second main point of application today. Be responsible stewards with, the, with what God has charged us with. I kind of alluded to that just a minute ago. About using the talents, the spiritual gifts that God has given us. All of this has been given that gift of salvation, that gift of the Holy Spirit. We must be responsible with what God has given us. With the situations He puts us in, with the way that we talk to people and treat others, with our commitment to live righteously. Obviously, we've all sinned and we will continue to sin. But do we fight and continue to fight the war against our carnal nature? It's interesting that the parable of the wicked and wise servant, we see that the wicked servant was only motivated by the master's presence. That's the only thing that motivated him. He could only be obedient when the master was there or when he thought the master was going to return because once his mind and heart had decided that my master delays his coming, he saw opportunity and he took advantage of it. He was just, being, he was just worried about being caught not by the authenticity of his stewardship. And on the same hand, the Apostle Paul tells us something similar to the way that we're both to behave and think, even in the absence of maybe our spiritual nurturers. And in this case, the Philippians was a church founded by Paul. And he wrote this to them in verse 12, talking about them being Disciples, true disciples that shine as lights in the world. In verse 12 of chapter 2 of Philippians. He says, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do good, or to do for his good pleasure, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And so Jesus is who we're looking forward to and we're to be a shining light as as that's our hope. That we're putting down ungodliness and unrighteous behavior. And we're seeking after that glorious appearing of Christ. That's going to happen. That's going to, that's imminent. That we don't know the day or the hour. And this main point that we're talking about, about being responsible with what God has given us. Every one of us has been given different life circumstances. God is putting us in a variety of roles, personal encounters. We're wives, we're husbands, we're, we're mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, brethren, caretakers, friends. 
We have many roles that God has put us in charge of. And we have a responsibility to live out those roles and to carry out those roles as that faithful servant. Because everything we do is to God. Whether we're a CEO of a large corporation or a stay-at-home parent. That we're doing it to the best of our ability with the integrity and we're doing it as to the Lord. That we're faithful and wise with what God has given us. That we have a servant mindset and that we live up to the worthiness of that calling that Jesus has called us to. That light in this broken and dark world. In conclusion, I would like to leave us today with a word of encouragement as we wait for the Lord's return and as we think about this monumental phase in God's plan of salvation. We share an anticipation with all the prophets and saints that have gone by and before us. Who have looked forward to this future day when, we'll, when God will restore this broken world to the times of restoration of all things as Peter, Peter made mention in Acts the third chapter. We also hear that Paul tells us in Romans, excuse me, we also know that Paul tells us in Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 22, a scripture that I think all of us, when we hear it, when we hear it spoken to us, I don't know if you're like me, but I feel what Paul is saying. He says this in verse 22 of Romans 8, that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have been the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And he would go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15th chapter, a mystery that the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed in a twinkling of an eye. That's something I didn't want to leave out. Because a part of this whole scheme of Jesus coming back is not only the restoration that we're finally going to see that this earth comes and gets. That judgment, that righteousness, that uh, justice will be established on this earth. But a long-awaited reunion will happen between us and many of our fellow brethren that we have known in this life. And of course, those brethren that we haven't known in this life, that have lived years and years before us. This day pictures that. So as we are exhorted to wait, to be on watch, to be prepared, and to be responsible, let's think about these things on this day of trumpet, on this day of teruah, this day of shouting, this day of crying, this day of a loud blast that ultimately is going to signify the ushering in of this wonderful, sobering, but glorious day that God has planned. The culmination of what we've been waiting on for so long. I'd like to leave us with one passage in Revelation, the 11th chapter, a closing passage. We know Revelation also talks about seven trumpets. And we read the Apostle John, as he wrote the book of Revelation, describes that seventh 
trumpet, that last trump. He says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were great, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, and this is verse 15 through 19, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reign, the nations were angry and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they shall be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and that those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. In verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in this temple. And there were lightning noises, thunderings, and earthquakes. And we read, and great hell. And we read in the very last part of Revelation, after all of this is given, that Jesus once again tells us, I come quickly. 